So we're going to be continuing on uh, tonight uh, in our, our series, Defiant Incarnation, through the Gospel of John. Some of you might be, at this point, probably wondering if it's going to take us three or four years to get through the Gospel of John. I just want to assure you that it's not. Uh, kind of our secret plan is that Joey gave Dave and I about 43 verses to get through each time we get up here. So that's kind of how we're going to jump through uh, the Gospel of John quicker than you might think. Um, so tonight we do have a longer passage. Um, I'm not going to read the entire thing uh, to you, but um, we're going to look at, at 10 verses from uh, John 4, 1 through 26. Uh, so we'll read that now. John 4, uh, specifically 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So tonight as we look at these verses, I think that we're going to see very clearly that Jesus is communicating something amazingly profound to this woman. That he's communicating that his gospel, the news of his, his life and his death and his resurrection and his exaltation, is going to be a gospel for all people. It's a gospel for everybody. We're going to go through the text Uh, and pick it apart and look at different aspects of it. But we're going to see that he does this in two ways. That he says that the gospel is for all people regardless of righteous standing. And he also says that the gospel is for all people regardless of race or ethnicity. So the gospel is for all people regardless of righteousness. The gospel is for all people regardless of race or ethnicity. Specifically, verse 16 says, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I think we immediately have to ask, who is this woman? What, what are some of the details that we notice about this woman as we walk through the text? Those are super important to this story. I think there's maybe four things, among others, that we do notice about this woman. 
First of all, she comes to the, the well alone. Secondly, she comes to the well at noon, which is pretty irregular. We'll talk about that. She's a Samaritan. She's a, a member of a race that the Jews couldn't care less about. We'll talk about that. And Jesus, in this situation, is a Jewish man speaking to a Samaritan woman. So first of all, this woman comes to the well alone. In this situation, typically what would happen is women would go to the wells or go to the well together. It was a, it was a social thing. This happened uh, typically in the morning. They would all go together before uh, the heat of the day really peaked and before uh, you know, they really had to suffer under the sun, uh, the Middle Eastern sun. But this woman comes alone, and she comes at noon, and it's very specific about when she comes to the well. This says something to us about who this woman is. Jesus points to this. I mean, he, he, he pinpoints it in verse 16 when he says, Woman, go, go call your husband. See, this woman was a social outcast. There was a reason she was coming alone. Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have no husband. This woman was a social outcast because somehow in a culture where divorce was completely unacceptable, socially unacceptable to be divorced, especially for a woman, this woman had figured out how to get divorced five times. That's something that people talk about. That's something that people know. And not only that, she's on to her sixth at this point. This, this woman is a social outcast. And I'm not here, I'm not trying to condemn this woman because the reality of the situation is this woman probably lived a, a desperately and unfortunate lonely life. This woman was probably uh, mistreated, abused, never loved in her life by any of these men. So I'm not here to condemn her. I'm just saying that this woman was a social outcast. There's a reason that she's at the well alone at noon. And Jesus doesn't, in verse 16, say, go call your husband to get to, to condemn this woman. He's not coming at her just to laugh at her or just to say, I know who you are, and I'm the Messiah, and you're condemned. That's not what he's about. That's not what he's doing in this situation. All that he's doing, which is amazing to, to, to really see the character of God in this, is that he is, he's pinpointing her sin all for the purpose of her recognizing her sinfulness and recognizing that she is in desperate need of who Christ is. That's why he does it. Now, it's, it's, it's from a place of love, not from a place of condemnation, and we should see that. You know, I think it's also really uh, healthy for us um, as we walk through this text, text to look at it in context uh, of the Gospel of John. So quickly, without too, too much of a diversion, I want to look at what happened just shortly before this. So we're in John 4, uh, verses 1 through 26 are, are the, is the complete passage that we're dealing with. But just the chapter before this, Jesus has another conversation with somebody. And Joey preached on this a couple weeks ago. 
But Jesus speaks with a man named, named Nicodemus. And so who was Nicodemus? What was Nicodemus' background? This guy was a ruler of the Jews. He was most likely super educated, very elite, very well-connected, you know, very high on the social ladder was Nicodemus. And just a chapter later, we see Jesus speaking with this Samaritan woman that, like I was saying, is a social outcast of a group that the Jews wanted nothing to do with. So in my mind, I can't think of a a, a lower rung of the ladder on the social ladder. I can't think of how you get any further down than this woman already was. And so in these two chapters, we see Jesus meeting and, and conversing with these two people. So what do they have in common? Because from the surface, they have nothing in common. Well, they have in common the fact that they both need Christ. They both need this conversation. They both need to hear from Jesus and to know that they need Jesus. Again, looking at Nicodemus, most likely... He had the entire Torah memorized. I mean, honestly, this guy probably knew the entire Torah. Just he he could riddle it off from memory. That's how righteous he was in the eyes of man. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have a woman that's been divorced five times. It's of a race of people that really is just considered a half breed. Between these two, we have the full spectrum of righteousness. We have the the super-righteous, the uber-righteous. We have the the completely unclean and unrighteous. And they both need Christ. In my mind, that covers every single person. In my mind, that is all of us. Some of us, might seem to have it all together. We might look like we have it all together. We might appear to be righteous, as Nicodemus did. Others of us, we have our issues. We go through life, it might not be as pretty as it is for others, and we might appear to be unrighteous. But these conversations, these two conversations together, Help us to see that we all need Christ. That Christ's gospel is one for all people, regardless of righteousness, regardless of our standing. That we all desperately need Jesus. But Jesus didn't stop there in his conversation with the woman. He he continued on. He went on to demonstrate that his gospel was not just for all people based or, or, or regardless of their righteous standing, but that his gospel is for all people regardless of their race. We see this specifically in verse 20, uh, 20 through 26. So we'll read that now. Verses 20, uh, starting in 20, going through 26. 
Our fathers worshipped, this is the woman speaking, we're, we're kind of picking up mid-conversation. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I think it's pretty quickly evident that there is some incredible background to this story. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but the Samaritans were this people group that the Jews considered, I mean, honestly, they were, they, they were kind of a subhuman kind of people group. So there's a lot going on here. You kind of hear it um, earlier in the text. We, we didn't read it just right here. But when Jesus asked the woman for water, she responds by saying, you, here just to read it specifically, you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. You see, she was caught off guard. She understood the social uh, climate. She understood what was going on here, that Jesus was Jewish and she was Samaritan. And what she's saying is that you, a Jew, would take a drink from me? Because what was going on here is the Jews considered the Samaritans so low in status and, like I said, almost subhuman that not only did they, they, they not associate with the Samaritans, not only did they say, you know, we're, 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 not, we're done here, but they wouldn't take a cup from a Samaritan. They wouldn't touch a plate that a Samaritan touched. That's the level of racial discrimination that's going on. That's the context for this conversation. And I think it's really good uh, for us to, to recognize that. Just to give you a, a little bit more of, of what was going on there and why the Samaritans you know, were viewed in this light. Back in the 700s, way be, 700 BC, way before Jesus' time, what had happened is in, in the area of Samaria, there were good Jews living there, good, you know, good people, so to speak, according to the Jewish culture. But the Assyrians came in and they just conquered and dominated these Jews. And what they did is they shipped off say half of them, not all of them, but they shipped off a good proportion of them. And then they said, you know, hey, 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 guys, the, the, the ones that are sticking around, you need to intermarry. You need to, to give up your religion. You need to become more Assyrian. And so the Jews, the, 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 the Jews that were in Samaria, that were in this position, began to do so. They began to intermarry. They began to have kids that were not uh, they were no longer fully Jewish. They were Assyrian and Jews. And so over time, as you can imagine, unfortunately, these Jews that lived in Samaria became this, this weird uh, people group that had abandoned their religion and weren't worthy of the, the righteous Jews, weren't worthy 
to even converse with them anymore, those Jews that were from Jerusalem. And so that's the, the context here. That's the, uh, the richness, not the, that's probably the wrong word. That's the context for this conversation that's happening. You know, I like to tell people that I was the token white boy of my family. Um, and, and what's funny is that I, that I am actually the token white boy of my family. And, and so I, I could sit here and explain my family dynamic to you for the next 20 minutes, and you'd still have questions. So I'm not going to get into all of it, but the short of it is, is that I have three siblings that are half Filipino, and I have one sibling, uh, an older brother, that's half black. And I, so I literally am the white boy of the family. And you better believe that I heard about being the white boy of the family. Um, but I remember growing up in that, and, and I remember when I was about 15, I was talking to my brother who's five years older than me, so he's about 20 at the time, and I remember him telling me that he had run into a lot of discrimination uh, as, as, as he had gone through high school. He was then in college. He had run into a lot of discrimination when he was attempting to date girls, that a lot of times he was just simply not good enough from the get-go, from, from ever before their father ever got to know him, he was just not good enough for their daughter. And that he was, he, he, on multiple occasions, was said that, you know, was told this, that he just wasn't good enough. And I just remember thinking, holy cow, I can't believe that. You know, it, for, again, the white kid, I, I couldn't relate. I couldn't go there with him. But we see in this story, and we recognize the context to this, that this is, you know, ten times, a hundred times, a thousand times worse than that. That the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Another aspect uh, behind this and the history behind this conversation is that the woman references a temple. She says that we worship uh, on Mount Gerizim while the Jews worship in Jerusalem. So what's going on here is because of the relationship, or lack thereof, the Samaritans had said, okay, if you guys won't, don't want us, we're not going to keep coming to Jerusalem to worship. We recognize that the temple's there, and that's where we're supposed to worship, according to you guys, but we're going to build our own temple. Enough of this. If you don't want us, we're not going to come down there. So we're going to build our own temple. And that's what they did. And so that's what the woman is referencing when she says, we worship here in Mount Gerizim. And so what we have is this idea of centralized worship, this idea that worship, only you know, valid worship, only good worship happens in these certain places. So it depends on who you're talking to. If it's a Jew, they say the temple in Jerusalem. If you're talking to a Samaritan, they say the temple at Mount Gerizim. But that's the idea, that's the, that's the mentality of both uh, the woman, and Jesus is obviously aware of this as well, but in verse 21, Jesus kind of blows that out of the water. He attacks it directly, and he says, listen, what you believe to be true and what the Jews tell you to be true about worship, I'm about to change all of that. I'm about to decentralize everything. No longer is, is valid worship, or I should say, no longer is worship going to be valid based on where it 
takes place or, or, or where it happens. Now, Jesus says that no longer will worship be this exclusive right of a few. He says, I'm about to change all of that. My death on a cross is going to change all of that. It's going it's to switch the paradigm. Everything will be different. He says that true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. So, practically speaking, this now decentralizes everything, that worship now becomes possible for anybody that the Spirit lives in, anybody that the Spirit guides. And as we know through, through, you know through the rest of Scripture, that that is offered freely, that that is offered openly to anybody that would ex- accept the Spirit of God. A great biblical theologian wrote about, uh, about this, uh, and he put it this way. This God, who is spirit, can be worshipped only in spirit and truth. The worship must be essentially God-centered, made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in personal knowledge of and conformity to God's word made flesh. The one who is God's truth, the faithful exposition and fulfillment of God and his saving purposes. Might be a long quote, but you don't hear anything in there about location. You don't hear anything in there about worship depends on where you are. What you do hear in there is a biblical theology on worship that says worship is valid as long as the Spirit leads it. And as long as it's done in truth, meaning it's confessional of what God has accomplished, it proclaims what God has accomplished through Christ. People, this is great news. I mean, to to the Samaritan, this had to blow her mind. I mean, I think it's hard for us somewhat because we live in the new covenant. We live uh, in the time where this is reality. But at the time that Jesus was speaking these words, this is groundbreaking. Nobody was talking about worship just happening wherever the Spirit led. You know, worship was done very, it was a very controlled thing. It was a very uh, controlled thing that was the, the right of an exclusive few. But what Christ is doing here. He breaks all that down. And to a Samaritan woman, he's saying, you can have that. It's no longer just for the Jews in Jerusalem. It's no longer just for the Samaritans at Mount Mount Gerizim. It's anywhere that people would call on the Spirit of God and allow the Spirit of God to lead them in worship. I've had the amazing opportunity to travel uh, abroad. Um, I, I, I've been to a, a number of different uh, countries and, and just been humbled by the experience. One of the, the greatest experiences on those trips, and really the, one of the greatest experiences of my entire life, is being able to worship in another culture. Being able to worship with people that don't speak the same language as me. People that share 
no cultural similarities. Specifically, one of those that uh, I think is so dramatic is, is, is in Ethiopia. And I've had the opportunity to be in a number of worship services. Uh, they're incredible to be a part of people worshiping in their own language, uh, their own culture. Um, it, it was an amazing thing. The women, specifically, I have to demonstrate this for you, but the women would usually stand at the back of, of whatever auditorium they were in, and they'd just do one of these. I don't really know what it was about, but you know, they would just stand back there, and they'd have white shawls over the top of them, and it was just amazing. And they, This was their worship to God. And there was a weird guy on a synthesizer just rocking out. But it was amazing to be in that situation and to know that those people that spoke a language that I couldn't even begin to tell you what they were saying and that, you know, ate food that I had no idea what was even in the food at times. They were worshiping Jesus. I didn't know what was being preached. I tried to follow along. If somebody tell me what book they were in, I was able to worship Jesus because I recognized at that moment that God had expanded his gospel, that Jesus had offered his gospel to anybody and everybody, that it wasn't an American gospel, as we tend to think at times. It wasn't a British gospel. It wasn't a South African gospel. It's a gospel for all people, regardless of, of race, regardless of culture, regardless of what people group you were born into. And this is what Jesus is sharing with this Samaritan woman. That's what he proclaims to her, that his gospel is open to all. So I think the, the natural question is, okay, how does that affect us? I mean, it's great to talk about that, but how do we then, you know, really apply that, really bring that home and, 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 and make that a part of our everyday life? We always want to be a church that allows our theology, enables our theology to affect our everyday life. And so, First, I think through his death on the cross, Christ did open this gospel to all. He opened it to anybody, regardless of righteousness, regardless of race. And because of that, that should motivate us. That should be our passion. That should let us know that this gospel, this truth that we know, this grace that we have received is for all people And that we desperately want to share it. We desperately want to communicate that and proclaim that to anybody that would listen, anybody that would hear and hopefully receive. Secondly, I think it just affects the way we worship. It affects the way we pursue and the way we approach God. If we recognize... that this gospel that Jesus offered was done freely, wasn't done by anything, again, that the Samaritan woman had done or that Nicodemus had done. It's not offered based on what you've done or what I've done. 
It's offered freely to anybody that would open their hearts to receive it. And because of that, we should worship passionately and freely and humbly. Will we be those worshipers today? Especially as we move through, even now, as we move through the rest of our service, will we be those worshipers that recognize what Jesus has done on our behalf, that he died on the cross for us, and that we come into, that, into this place because of that. That should influence the way we sing these songs, the way we take communion here in just a, here in just a, a bit. Restoration Road, that's my hope, that's my prayer for us this evening. Let me pray over us. Father, we, we do come before you humbly, thanking you that what you communicated 2,000 years ago to a, a woman that probably had nobody uh, left in her life, nobody that authentically cared for her, nobody that, that loved her, you communicated a truth to her that changed the world. You communicated that your gospel, that your death and your resurrection and your exaltation would change the world forever. And that not only that, but that it was offered freely as a gospel for all people. And so we just praise you for that. We, we, we pray, God, that that would affect every fiber of our being, that that would um, aliven our souls. And specifically, we pray even now as we uh, enter into other uh, sections of our, our, our worship that that would affect us now. Even as we go into communion, as we sing, that we would worship passionately based on what you have done on our behalf. We love you, God. We thank you, and we praise you. Amen.